Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. My name is Simon Cowley and today I'm going to be taking you through the highlights of the August 2021 edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal. So welcome back. Um, it's high summer here in the Northern Hemisphere and we've got lots of hopes that COVID-19 would have been a distant memory by now but sadly uh, those hopes are pretty much broken aren't they? We're currently in wave N plus one at the moment where N depends on where you are in the world and how many waves you've had already. I think where I am I think we're at least in wave four. But, you know, there is this hope in sight. Vaccine rollouts continue around the world and hopefully they will stay ahead of the variants, which are almost certainly on the horizon and who knows what they will bring. But, you know, we're in a good place in many ways. So what else have we got this month? Um, Well, we'll kick off with the editor's choice, um, which is the priest study. This is a huge observational trial of COVID-19 patients presenting to UK emergency departments at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it gave us essential information on risk assessment um, amongst those patients. Actually, it's a, it's a really good example of how a trial can be rapidly delivered in a pandemic at scale and at pace. And it's a real lesson for how we need to plan for future pandemics uh, that will almost inevitably come after COVID. Because this study, the pre-study, was actually based around a study which was set up for the investigation of the next flu pandemic. I think the the name of that trial, confusingly, was also called Pandemic. So Priest came out of Pandemic, interestingly. Anyway, the study is um, particularly useful, I think, from an emergency clinician's point of view, because it looked at the sort of information and the sort of um, severity scales which you get at the front door of the ED. So there's lots of other sort of scoring systems out there, but they may rely on laboratory evidence or stuff which you're not going to have for several hours. But using well-known scores such as News 2 is quite helpful. And I think it's interesting, actually, because whilst some of the therapeutic trials have arguably had a lot more kudos and, and sort of publicity, things like recovery trials and the remap cap trials, for us as emergency clinicians, it's it's diagnosis, prognosis, risk assessment, and then you know subsequent decisions about disposition, about what we do with the patients once we've done those things. That's really at the core of our specialty, and so I'm I'm really pleased that the pre studies the editor's choice this week. Great example of a UK research showing what can be done in a pandemic, and I, I you know my commendations to all the authors and a big clap all round really. Keeping with a COVID theme, um, we've got a paper by Richards et al, which examined the evidence for prone positioning for non-intubated hypoxic COVID-19 patients. This is something which I see done all the time. And it's, you know, oh, you must prone the patients um, in the ED awake. And you often see these sort of crazy sort of lines of patients lying on the front, which often sounds weird. But despite millions of cases worldwide and you know, the lots and lots of enthusiasm for this technique, um, the evidence base from 31 trials in this, in this review is actually pretty poor. And whilst there are sort of theoretical physiological advantages, um, and anecdotally you can see a short-term improvement, I don't think it's really clear yet whether that translates into important patient-related outcomes. And it's clear from this study that we need more data to support clinical practice and from well-designed clinical trials. And come on, guys, we're not short of patients. It should be able to be done in a slightly better way. Moving away from COVID, um, we've got a great paper on leading cardiac arrests. It's a complex task that even very experienced clinicians can find cognitively overwhelming. And you can think about it as sort of there's the in-the-moment task of sticking to an algorithm um, sort of running through the ALS, sort of flying the patient, so to speak, as we, we talk about sometimes. But then there's also a sort of separate cognitive function, which is why you're trying to work out what actually is going on here and how do we get out of it. And that's a sort of more the strategic plan. 
in my experience, few individuals can do both of those effectively. Um, and that's why, you know, for quite a long time, actually, we've been teaching the concept of splitting the roles to so cognitively offload the strategic leader to strategically direct the arrest and leading somebody else to actually just run the algorithms, keep the patient going whilst you figure out how we get out of this and whether we're going to do anything different. So I was personally very delighted to see this concept tested in the Can Lead trial published this month in the journal. And they used um, initially a simulated model of cardiac arrest and they used nursing team leaders to run the ALS algorithm supposedly then leaving the doctors to do the strategic stuff. Now, I don't want to get into silos or roles, but I like the idea of just splitting the people. I'm not too het up on the on, on what particular tribe anybody belongs to. Anyway, 20 simulations, over 120 participants, and they found an improved overall team performance, which is great and, you know, supports um, what we've been teaching for some time. So that's great. Now, what I don't know is whether that would translate to better outcome for patients in a real-world setting, um, but it's got face validity and this study supports that further work. Also point out that it's a welcome reminder that nurses are perfectly capable of running cardiac arrests. And in fact, some of the best resuscitationists I know around the world work with their nurses in exactly this manner. So I often find in the ED that um, you will see a, a junior doctor put in you know, with supervision put in charge of a cardiac arrest when you've got a nursing ALS instructor stood next to them. And actually, we need to get away from that. We, we need to get the right people doing the right jobs um, based on the competence, not necessarily which particular badge they were wearing. I think emergency medicine is pretty good at that, actually. Moving on, cardiac arrest is conditioned, amongst others, where debriefing is very important. And so it's good, I think, to see a study of the use of a structured debriefing tool from Sugarman et al, who actually report this as a, a quality improvement project, QUIP, looking at the take stock tool. Um, other tools are available, um, you can find them. Uh, Edinburgh's got a good uh, one, there's a nice one done from uh, Kirsten Walthall in Preston, but it doesn't matter, I suppose, which tool, but they've looked at the particular this take stock one, it has common features with other tools. QIP reports or QIP reports, quality improvement projects, they're relatively new to the journal. And the idea is that we're hoping to highlight effective and interesting projects that can make a real difference to patient care. A QIP shows a broad welcoming of a structured approach to debriefing from all staff members and articulates a path for their introduction. So if you're not already using a debriefing tool, then have a look at this about uh, the take stock tool, which is excellent. And then also about the methodology about how you might put it into your practice. Now, as a right or rather read this. There's a lot of media attention in the UK regarding the number of paediatric attendances to UK emergency departments and I've seen people like Damien Rowland from Leicester um, on the TV this week uh, working hard to try and educate the public on what fever means in the paediatric population. And whilst most fevers are benign we all know that it can also be a mark of infection. And so we have two papers with fever as a theme this month um, in August. Chong et al. looked at children under three months, which is a particularly notoriously difficult and more high-risk group to try and differentiate serious from benign disease in. And they these were feverish patients. And in their cohort, the insensitivity was pretty high, 33%. But there are clues in things like heart rate variability, which is not something we normally mention, but has, has cropped up quite a lot, in not just in paediatric practice, as a potential marker for... For, for badness basically temperature and also some gender um, features quite interesting paper actually we're having a look at that one in this particularly difficult group to um to diagnose and um in a slightly less risky group uh, malatel have also looked at the prescription of antibiotics in pediatric sore throat and what they've found perhaps unsurprisingly there's quite a lot of variability between clinical clinician choice and more formalized scoring mechanisms and it's a good story to remind us that the research findings in this case, scoring systems, rarely perform or penetrate clinical practice in the way that we would hope or anticipate. 
pesky clinicians, when you start putting science into them, it all changes. I don't mean that. I mean, there's always a bit of variability. But this is an interesting paper and a good reminder that what we do as clinicians is often based not purely on the science, but lots of other things that are going on as well, including our own personal beliefs. Um, sticking with paediatrics, um, I was quite interested to read a paper that made me stop quite a lot and think about my own practice um, for toddlers' fractures. I even put up a Twitter poll out, which I might tell you the results of in a second. My approach with toddlers' fractures has always been to to basically do as little as possible, really. And very rarely we would use um, plaster of Paris, or you can use splints and things like that. But if the patient's not distressed and not in any pain, not too bothered, might even do nothing initially. Um, but this month, interestingly, we have a randomised control trial from Australia comparing above-knee POP, plaster Paris, to a controlled ankle motion boot. And they found that the controlled motion boot is easy to live with, get a faster return to activities of daily living, and there's no major healing problems. So I did put a Twitter poll out, and it was pretty much split in a third of the people. There's quite several hundred people in this Twitter poll. Um, a third of the people were putting above-knee back slabs on, a third of people were using splints, and a third of people were doing what we would describe as as little as, as, as possible. Um, and just treating according to symptoms. So there's clearly a lot of variation in this um, and quite an interesting paper to read. Nicely designed um, and see what you think. See if you agree with the findings. I will certainly reflect on my practice on the basis of this one. Obviously, there's loads more in this month's edition, but I will end with a reminder that our perceptions of emergency care may well differ from those of our patients. So Bulletel's systematic review of patient experience in the emergency department is really enlightening two big themes. One is the issue about interaction between patients and the staff and the other was about how the environment works for them and, and how they're informed and kept up to date. Really interesting, quite a lot to reflect on there and perhaps it's one of those papers that you need to read and then go back to your department and see well hmm, how would this look from a patient perspective. So that's August. As I said, there's lots more in there. I hope you're enjoying your summer, or if you're living in the Southern Hemisphere, um, I hope your winter's not too bad. And yes, we shall see you again in September. I hope you have a good time, and I hope everybody stays well. Bye.